Hi, and welcome back to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series featuring articles from the November 2019 issue. That's volume 40, issue 11. On today's episode, Kelly Cockett discusses her review article on using social media for research dissemination. Then Christina Thornton discusses her article, Anaphylaxis and Anaphylactoid Reactions Associated with the Insertion of Peripherally Inserted Central Catheters, a Multi-Year Comparative Retrospective Cohort Study. And lastly, Calvin Yu and Cliff McDonald discussed their article, Hospital-Level High-Risk Antibiotic Use in Relation to Hospital-Associated Clostridioides Difficile Infections, Retrospective Analysis of 2016 to 2017 Data from U.S. Hospitals. After listening, please be sure to go to the November issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Joining us first today is Kelly Cockett. Dr. Cockett, along with Jasmine Marcellin and Julie Silver, recently wrote a review article for Itchy on using social media to disseminate research in infection prevention, hospital epidemiology, and antimicrobial stewardship. Dr. Cockett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. I am a infectious disease and critical care physician at University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And I serve as an associate director for infection control and hospital epidemiology, and also serve as a co-director for digital innovation and social media strategy for the Division of Infectious Diseases. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, To begin, can you tell us a little bit about just your personal involvement and interest in using social media as a tool for research dissemination? Absolutely. So I want to start simply with personally how I got engaged with social media. I do want to acknowledge that I was a very early adopter of social media. So when we think about going as far back as dial-up internet and AOL, MySpace, some of these early platforms that I'm sure many people listening don't remember but were there, I was engaged in all of those and found the technology to be just stunning in its capacity to foster communication and relationships with people that were not in my normal geographic location or necessarily people that I would have otherwise met in my own location. And my interest then just evolved as more platforms were created and throughout my training and life experiences, I've stayed engaged with multiple platforms prior to ever seeing this evolve into the medical realms or research and thoughts around dissemination of research on social media. I definitively have to say that Dr. Silver really was instrumental in my evolving interest in the use of social media for research dissemination. And we published a paper earlier in 2019 on the use of social media to improve dissemination of research and collect solutions as it related to workforce gender equity, which further prompted interest in how this can be assessed for infection prevention and control, which I think is a area in which 
we all recognize in this field the value of our research and the industry that is evolving on how to create best practices to prevent infections. But often it seems that we are a bit of our own echo chamber. And for a field that really touches all areas of medicine, I think considering strategies to break our own echo chamber and share this crucial infection prevention and even antimicrobial stewardship data to those beyond our specialty is crucial. And so what research exists on social media for research dissemination and what does the research tell us? That's a great question. So the research on social media actually has been evolving over the last decade or more on how social media impacts medicine. And we know that there's research related to providing medical education, such as for antimicrobial stewardship that's been published. But when we think about it from a individual researcher or even from a journal's perspective, we do have evolving research showing the potential impact. And when we think about impact for dissemination of research, one of the data points we need to consider is alternative metrics. Alternative metrics really are the mathematical analysis of the impact of a particular article or journal based on how articles are shared in the digital arena. And some of the data that we're seeing evolve related to social media very specifically looks at that. So we know that originally, going back to some of the older data, in 2010, there was an article published by Scanfeld that talks about the dissemination of health information through social networks, looking at Twitter and antibiotics, highlighting that there is the capacity for effective sharing of health information. And that idea has really evolved farther into the idea that if you share research on social media, you can intentionally impact the digital dissemination and alternative metrics numbers as it relates again to a particular article or a particular journal. So for instance, I mentioned previously that Dr. Silver and I worked on a paper that was published earlier in 2019, which we did cite in our review article that we're referencing today, that really looks at social media to improve dissemination of research, looking at the alternative metrics for each article and looking at the rank in respective journals. And we did find that using a coordinated strategy could profoundly impact and increase the individual article alternative metrics and the rank of the article within its respective journal based on those strategies. So both from a individual researcher who's trying to share their expertise in their research, especially when we think about early career faculty or fellows who are trying to carve a niche of expertise, considering sharing that research on social media may help by having a larger arena of people see the articles than traditionally may have happened if it was just shared organically by publication from the particular journal. There was actually a randomized controlled trial published in Academic Medicine coming out of Mayo Clinic by Widmer J. et al. looking at the exact same 
idea of dissemination of articles and did find that articles randomized to social media were more widely accessed compared to those without social media promotion. So fairly strong data evolving on individual articles being shared on social media certainly seem to have impact and increase those metrics, increase the dissemination of the work. We also know as we consider how best to share on social media that the addition of a visual abstract or a pictorial representation, think about a very simplified PowerPoint slide of the primary conclusions of a given study, further improve the dissemination of an article on social media. And this really was pioneered by a group, Dr. Ibrahim et al. from the Annals of Surgery published in 2017, where they showed specifically use of Twitter with disseminating research that if you use a visual abstract as compared to a non-visual abstract, you will see significantly more dissemination of the article and more shares in general of that article. It has a visual component to it. And then finally, even from an overall journal perspective, as we are talking about a variety of articles in this podcast, there's data that when a journal implements social media strategy, that they can impact their alternative metrics, which may ultimately be associated with an impact factor increase, but also generate more conversation regarding that specialty's workforce. And this was highlighted in another article that Dr. Silver was an author on, related to the PM&R journal in 2018, and specifically looking at how the PM&R journal implemented a social media strategy to disseminate their research and track alternative metrics within their field. And then I think finally, when we look at research and we look at these impact, sometimes one of the questions becomes, that's fine and great, I can increase the dissemination, but what does it mean at the end of the day? And I think it's a very valuable question. Beyond increasing potential recognition for expertise in your area of research, there are other potential opportunities that may evolve, such as invitations to speak or collaborate with other people that you can network with on social media who engage with the posts regarding your research. But also, there's evolving publications and data on the use of social media scholarship and alternative metrics as it relates to academic promotion and tenure. Now, I know not everyone in the audience necessarily is looking at academic promotion and tenure, but for those researchers who are, this is something that may be reflected in promotion packets and data collected and sent in for consideration for promotion. So looking towards the future where some of these data points may be increasingly helpful, that is one area in which I think we should not undersell the potential power of social media. If you have early dissemination, you may ultimately have an increase in citations going forward, which ultimately goes back to our conventional metrics of citation count, h-index, and again for an overall journal, the impact factor of the journal. So there could be quite a long reach of dissemination from social media immediately on publication to how it impacts careers and promotion status and overall success of a researcher or a journal over time. And so what suggestions do you have for researchers who are interested in becoming more active on social media as a way to promote their work and engage in professional development through social media? That is such a good question. And one of the most common questions I think that I hear is, 
how do I do this? I haven't done it. So the first thing that I will say is one, if you're not used to using social media, this is really an arena where you have to adopt a growth mindset. There is a learning curve. It's not profoundly difficult, but it does take a little bit of effort and it's learning a new skill in your arsenal that will take some time to hone in. Additionally, if you are new to social media, don't try to engage on all the platforms. If I was going to pick one platform to encourage you to enter, it would be Twitter. Based on the data we have in the past, Twitter is where most of, most of our health professionals are coming and engaging in conversation. So it's a great place to start where you can engage with other people in the field of infection prevention and control, antimicrobial stewardship, infectious diseases, microbiology, and so on. When you create the first account, it's okay to do something that we refer to as lurk, which means to have the account and to be watching, you know, certain groups posting. So following Shay or, you know, the journal for Itchy's posts and seeing what the posts look like and how people engage with them and getting a little comfortable with the environment online. And then you can start understanding the processes and responding and creating posts. If you want to accelerate even faster, ask for help. Ask someone who is engaged on social media to show you the ropes. Look for faculty development sessions at your institution or at other regional or national conferences. These are becoming increasingly more common and are a great place to get some basic skills and understanding down on how to do different components, including posting links and research on social media to building a visual abstract. And then really engage with the same professional status that you would if you were talking to someone in person or if you are presenting on stage. Do not change what you perceive as a professional conversation because you're on social media. It's a very easy trap to fall into, but we want to maintain that professional capacity if we are using social media to disseminate research professionally. And then along with that, think about what you want to share. If you're sharing your research and you have expertise in something like central line associated bloodstream infections, you may want to share more data on you know, new catheters in publications that are perhaps not yours, but that you find interesting and engage in those conversations, even if it is not your specific research article that's being discussed. And finally, I would say with the article that we just published in Itchy, there are some hashtags and best practices and also pitfalls to be aware of specifically in the manuscript and publication. So I would also refer people back to that for more detailed information. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Cockett, for joining us today on the Itchy podcast. Thank you again so much for the invitation. It was a pleasure to be here. Our next guest today is Dr. Christina Thornton, first author of the article, Anaphylaxis and Anaphylactoid Reactions Associated with the Insertion of Peripherally Inserted Central Catheters, a Multi-Year Comparative Retrospective Cohort Study. Hi, Dr. Thornton. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks very much for the opportunity to chat about the paper. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So um, my name's uh, Dr. Christina Thornton. I'm a pulmonary fellow from the University of Calgary. Um, to begin, would you give us a little bit of the background for this study? Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, so our study really looked at um, assessing 
um, issues related to peripherally inserted central catheters or PICs. And just so everyone um, understands what we're referring to here, PICs are a type of central catheter that are essentially non-permanent vascular access devices. So the modality in the past used to be primarily central venous catheters or CVCs, um, and primarily these are used for delivering long-term antimicrobial therapy or parenteral therapy, but it's been found that these, um, the advent of PICs have really associated some of the complications associated with CVCs. And so more and more in, in hospital settings, um, whether inpatient or outpatient, they are being used as a modality to deliver longer term uh, therapy, whichever it may be. And so with PICS, we essentially had noted over some time um, at our center, and I can go into this in a bit more detail, where after a change in the different brand of PICS being used, we started noting anaphylactic or anaphylactoid reactions. And just so that's clear to everyone, these reactions, the, the strict definition is essentially an IgE-mediated event, but from a clinical perspective, what the advanced nursing team noted with these insertions were people demonstrating pretty profound clinical reactions, ranging anywhere from flushing or tachycardia to actually activation of a code blue or intensive care unit system. And so we started noting that on a somewhat anecdotal basis, and then essentially from that in 2010 is when we started to prospectively collect these reactions to try and elucidate what is going on with this patient population. And so in this itchy article, what exactly did you do and what did you find? So essentially what we did, um, we took over about a four year period from 2010 to 2014, we monitored patients at two large tertiary care centers in Calgary following insertion of PICS. Now, 2010 is sort of a pivotal year in this study because our health center actually changed the brand and type of PICS, um, and they all went to either a power PICS solo catheter or a Groshang PIC, all of which used a Sherlock TLS, which is a magnetized stylet wire, and that becomes very important in our results later on. And so what we did in that four-year period is our advanced nursing staff started systematically monitoring patients who were developing significant adverse events. And I can go into that definition in a bit in the results. And they were recording these results essentially on a prospective basis. So we collected that data over four years, um, over numerous insertions, over 8,000 insertions. And then we wanted to add to the strength of our study. So we actually compared these to uh, another hospital in Calgary that actually does not use those initial um, PICs. They use another type as a kind of comparator population. It's called the BioFlow PIC, um, as well as a large uh, center in Ottawa, Canada. We use that as a comparator population as well. That program has a very established PIC service. And so following that, over that time period, we then went back and assessed the reactions, assessed what actually happened to them using different clinical criteria for anaphylaxis or anaphylactoid reactions, and then assessed clinical parameters associated with it, such as indication for PIC insertion, um, relevant clinical background, and then looked to essentially elucidate from a statistical perspective what these reactions were and how often they were occurring. And so what were your findings? 
So our findings essentially over that four-year period, we had just over um, 8,000 insertions in total. So those were all comers for various reasons. And from that, we had about 37 reactions in total, or 0.45%, that were defined as anaphylactic or anaphylactoid. And again, the thing to note is all of those were inserting either the PowerPig Solo or the Groshing Pick using the Sherlock TLS. When we compare that to our other hospital in Calgary that does not use that particular um, insertion, as well as the Ottawa hospital, which actually encompasses over 15,000 insertions, there were no reactions whatsoever. So it seems to be really localized to this particular device. Following those reactions, we then went forward and used several definitions for anaphylactic or anaphylactoid reactions, simply because the literature is fairly broad as to what defines a reaction. There's no standardized definitions. We actually wanted to utilize three different reactions that are noted in our table in the paper. And then from that, we used um, two clinicians to assess kappa significance or inter-reader significance. And essentially what we found is amongst those 37 reactions, depending on what definition we use, whether it's more stringent or more lax, anywhere from 54 to 92% met significance in terms of anaphylactic or anaphylactoid reaction with moderate kappa agreement. The interesting part of our results, and I think the point to highlight in this paper is not only did we see those reactions that are seemingly associated with that particular device, but amongst the 37 patients, four of them had cystic fibrosis. Now, I do acknowledge these are fairly small values of patients, and that is a limitation which we'll address, but the incidence of these reactions amongst cystic fibrosis patients were significantly higher than non-CF patients. So it was almost uh, 10 to 20-fold higher, and I think it's an area that needs to be highlighted going forward. And so what would you say are the key takeaways of this study for itchy readers? Yeah, so I think there's several um, components to our study that can be highlighted. Number one is understanding that PIC insertions and PIC devices, while they have really changed the dogma of delivering long-term therapy as compared to central venous catheters, they're not without their risks. And so I think the astute clinician needs to be aware that these anaphylactic or anaphylactoid reactions could occur to have a better sense as to what to do if that happens. As part of our study, we actually went back and looked at FDA reports as well as a large series by Mermel et al., which is referenced in the paper. And certainly these findings have been noted over some time. And I think more and more we're starting to elucidate that. Um, so I think that's an important take-home point. The second take-home point is in particular, at least in our study, we found disproportionately cystic fibrosis patients were affected. And so I think this raises questions as to a, what is it about this particular population that makes them more prone for potential IgE-mediated reactions? But B, if potentially there's other populations of patients we're not yet aware of that may also be disproportionately affected. And the thing to note is pick insertion in populations. In general, you're subselecting for people that need long-term chemo, long-term antimicrobial therapy. So they may be more sensitive patients for various biological reasons, which we don't fully understand, but it is important for the clinician or the reader to be aware of that going forward. And Dr. Thornton, did the limitations of your study or its findings raise any future research questions that you'd like to investigate? 
I think our study, you know, it's highlighted this clinical question, but where we do need further research is the actual biological mechanism behind these reactions. At this point, it's all theoretical. We do know that when we went back and looked in the patents, um, there is neodymium within this TLS component. And there have been some anecdotal in vitro studies that have looked at neodymium as a sense of basophil or mast cell degranulation. But again, this is all in vitro data and it's we could postulate that this may be implicated in the reactions we observed in our study but certainly i think from a mechanistic causation perspective we do need to do further investigations into that to try and tease out on a level why this is happening and then we also acknowledge that although we do see a higher fold rate in the cystic fibrosis patients in our study it is a small number so i think we do need to be aware of that going forward um, and not overgeneralize our results but just highlight the potential for uh, complications with specific populations. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Thornton, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thanks, Lindsay. Our last guests today are Calvin Yu and Cliff McDonald, two of the authors of the article, Hospital-Level High-Risk Antibiotic Use in Relation to Hospital-Associated Clostridioides Difficile Infections. Retrospective Analysis of 2016 to 2017 Data from U.S. Hospitals. Dr. Yu and Dr. McDonald, thanks so much for joining us today. To begin, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, I'm Dr. Cliff McDonald uh, from the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control, where I am, my official position is the Associate Director for Science. Hi there, and this is Calvin Yu. I am an infectious disease physician, and I am the Medical Director over Medical Informatics at Becton Dickinson. Thank you. To begin, would you provide our listeners with a little bit of the background for this study? Sure. As our listeners know, Clostridium difficile infections have been a major problem in U.S. healthcare uh, facilities. It's now Clostridium difficile is the leading cause of healthcare-associated infection, specifically uh, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Back in 2011, we reported over 450,000 cases per year of C. difficile infection with 30-day deaths, associated deaths of 29,000 and attributable deaths of, of about half that, about 15,000. Uh, C. difficile infection can, of course, be prevented through more appropriate antibiotic use, antibiotic use being one of the most important reversible risk factors. And there's been increasing attention to antibiotic stewardship and specifically trying to reduce the use of high-risk antibiotics. Maybe, Doctor, you could say some more about antibiotic stewardship overall and some of the other tools available. Yeah, sure. So as a uh, practicing infectious disease clinician over the last 20 years, you know, one of the new tools in our arsenal is the tracking that's made available publicly by the NHSN with their AU module. And actually starting from, I believe, earlier this year, there's a new category of uh, high-risk C. diff antimicrobials that are tracked. And so this analysis is really timely in that over time, you can imagine that we can glean some national-level insights on the trends of antimicrobial use. It's already bucketed in, in potential high-risk categories by the NHSN. And the more that uh, hospital systems participate in this voluntary program, we may be able to do more sophisticated studies, and, and we think that this is one of the first sort of resetting the baseline type of analysis before that was made available 
to us. So it's an exciting time for C. diff mitigation and antimicrobial stewardship. And so for this study and analysis, what exactly did you do and what did you find? So we looked at 171 hospitals in, in our database, 39% of which were teaching, and looked at antibiotic use for previously defined high-risk C. diff antimicrobials, which for the purposes of this paper were defined as uh, second, third, fourth generation cephalosporins, fluoroquinolones, carbapenems, and quindamycin. And this was during the year of uh, June 1st, 2016 to the following July 2017. And that time demarcation is, is kind of important and sort of distinguishes this paper from others in that this is largely the first large post-stewardship study, if you will, using most recent data. So what I mean by that is that in 2014, the CDC created the core element guidelines for inpatient antimicrobial stewardship. And as we all know, the Joint Commission CMS supported uh, those core elements in their audits. And newly, about a month ago, um, those same elements uh, were referenced in the condition of participation for CMS. And so really what we have here is a data set that exists two years after the creation of these guidelines and support from regulatory bodies, in, in which case there may be a difference in the use of high-risk antimicrobials for C. diff as most stewardship programs at least try to mitigate C. diff in some form or capacity. And so I think in this data set, as Cliff will go into, we, we found some insights that maybe reflect those types of changes. We also defined C. diff, and it, it bears worth repeating the definition of a case because there's a lot of studies out there looking at C. diff. So a C. diff case was defined as a, a positive stool C. diff toxin and or molecular assay test. As we know, sometimes hospital systems are combining the two without a positive in the prior eight weeks. And then the hospital-associated C. diff case was defined as specimens collected and tested greater than three days after hospitalization, or if it was collected and tested within three days of admission, but was from a patient with a prior hospitalization within the last 28 days. And so I think that was also a nuance that was important for the study as it had a more robust definition of hospital-associated C. diff with the readmission population. And finally, we used a uh, multivariable Poisson regression model to estimate the relative risk of high-risk antibiotic use on hospital-associated C. diff, controlling for confounding factors such as average length of stay, proportion of patients that are greater than 65 years old, proton pump inhibitor use, community onset, non-hospital-associated C. diff, and teaching status. And so we found some interesting results. Cliff, if you want to go into a few of those. Yeah, and maybe before we do that specifically, I'll just say a few words about antibiotics and the risk of C. difficile infection in general. And as our listeners know, uh, virtually all antibiotics, every antibiotic has been, almost every antibiotic has been associated with C. difficile infection. And uh, there's both the risk of uh, developing C. difficile while you're on the antibiotic and after the antibiotic also. This is thought to be mediated through the disruption of the normal microbiota in the large intestine. And the antibiotics that uh, Calvin mentioned were de uh, described in the recent C. diff guideline as being particularly high risk. And one group in particular was associated in the early 2000s uh, with an epidemic strain, that being the fluoroquinolones, and got a lot of attention as really driving C. difficile even 
over the last decade, or, or at least uh, up through the early uh, 20-teens. Um, and we had done some work here at CDC and Kosakova et al. published um, a previous study up through 2012, looking at data from a number of hospitals up through 2012, and did find this group of high-risk antibiotics associated then, but specifically fluoroquinolones uh, also being uh, associated, um, not uniformly so, but but still very much associated with C. difficile. And so one one opportunity this study affords us is to, to look at uh, how we might see a changing risk with different antibiotic groups as antibiotics themselves are being prescribed in different ways. And so what would you say are some of the key takeaways from this study for itchy readers? Well, uh, for every additional 100 days of, of therapy of these high-risk antibiotics, we saw an approximately 12% increase in the risk of healthcare-associated CDI, as Calvin defined it. Teaching hospitals were also... Uh, their designation was also associated with higher risk, um, independent of that, and also community onset CDI, which is something we we have known about for some time. This is the C. difficile infections that are diagnosed in the first three days of hospitalization, that they are associated with a higher hospital, uh, risk of CDI developing while in the hospital. And we think that that's partly because that that implies that there's more C. difficile colonization also coming into that hospital. So we often talk about hospitals being at certain risk because of the zip code, because other facilities are feeding C. difficile into them. So in this study, we did control for that. So then when we look at the antibiotics, and I'll let Calvin talk about the antibiotics association we found here, we are actually controlling for these other factors, their teaching status and the community onset burden or pressure so, you know, on a broad view, the, the stat that Cliff gave out, the 12% increase of uh, hospital-associated CDI for every additional 100 days of therapy, that, that actually translates um, in this analysis to approximately four cases of hospital-associated C. diff for every 100 days of therapy of high-risk antibiotics per 1,000 days at risk. And I think that's nice to have a tangible target, operationally speaking, for stewardship programs, because if you think about it, particularly in the U.S., the guidelines and the regulatory mandates don't really give a whole lot of specification on the number of FTEs for a stewardship program. And, you know, I recently had the opportunity of looking at Canada's proposal, and they actually outlined a certain number of FTEs for an ID physician, a pharmacist, um, infection prevention practitioner. So I thought that that was interesting because that does affect operationally how we decide what to triage in stewardship programs. And so having something tangible of a number, because I think when stewardship programs look at the issue of C. diff, it can be daunting, right? Because it's, uh, it has to do with uh, contact isolation, hand hygiene, and only one of the drivers is antimicrobial use. But ostensibly, that's one of the ones that we can really uh, mitigate to any certainty. And so I, I think having a number for a target, because stewardship programs are sort of held accountable for their own home metrics, I, th I think to have a target of, okay, we're going to try to decrease, you know, by 100 patient uh, days of therapy um, to help mitigate maybe four cases of C. diff, that's not 
an unrealistic expectation from from this analysis. And so it suddenly quantifies and gives a number to shoot for, for something that was largely theoretical and something that stewardship programs nationwide were left to their own devices to figure out on their own what, what that metric might be. And so I think that's helpful. You know, time will tell if it if actually bears fruit, but I think um, to have some sort of target and peer-reviewed evidence uh, really, I would hope, would empower the uh, stewardship programs. The other thing is when we looked at the high-risk antibiotic uh, subcategories, which we did do individually, it turns out for this time period of analysis, which again were two years after stewardship became a national mandate, if you will, um, at least from regulatory auspices, um, the cephalosporins were really the ones that were the m- most associated with C. diff. And so you'll note that fluoroquinolones, for instance, were not associated where in the past analyses, pre-ASP, if you will, that they were implicated in, in as very heavily influencing or associated or correlated with, with C. diff. And so, you know, one of the things we talked about in the paper is patterns of prescription post-stewardship in America have probably changed, and it actually coincided with the time where there was a black box warning for fluoroquinolones, and so the overall decrease that we've seen maybe removed the, the signal in our analysis of fluoroquinolones, but it doesn't mean it's still not high risk. It just means that for this analysis and for a national view of antimicrobial consumption, that it just didn't uh, red flag as, as highly correlated, and so I think the concept of grouping high-risk antimicrobials as a group and tracking them all together as a group has some merit because over time, what we know through the last four or five years of stewardship is that there is a balloon effect, right? There will be targets, and then when you reach a target, you might change your target, and so antibiotic use will go up in one and go down in another. And who's to say, you know, after this paper, maybe people will start targeting third and fourth generation cephalosporins, in which case quinolone use might increase, carbapenems might increase, and they might become signals again. And so, again, it's nice with the NHSN AU module to have a tracking device, if you will, available and participation on a voluntary basis to look at these insights over time. And I think, Cliff, we touched upon that on the paper if you wanted to add more on that concept. Yeah, I think the the changing over time in Calvin's comment about fluoroquinolones are still uh, potentially high risk and not to assume that, oh, because there's not a signal that it's not there. So some of the risk from fluoroquinolones may have been uh, particularly pronounced with the epidemic strain, the 027 strain, when it first came on, and it's highly fluoroquinone uh, resistant and selected for, and it appears to be more virulent, some call it hypervirulent compared to other strains. And so If you look back in the literature at C. diff and fluoroquinolones back in the 80s and 90s, of course, they weren't used as much, but um, maybe they were used in different populations. We do know that in the late 90s, I mean, they were introduced for uh, the respiratory fluoroquinolones were introduced, and, and they started to be used probably in older populations more often. But also, that strain uh, was probably a key part of it. So if that strain becomes less prevalent, and it seems to be, uh, although we'll be continuing to track it, it's still there's still a fair amount of it in the United States, at least in most recent years in our surveillance. So we should still be vigilant. 
In England, they have virtually uh, really decreased fluoroquinolone use. It's not that they don't use them at all, but um, have very much uh, decreased fluoroquinolone use. They've also reduced cephalosporin use, but the the strain, the O27 strain, is virtually well, I won't say become extinct because uh, if we started to use more some some of these antibiotics, we might see it come right out of the woodwork, so to speak. But has become less much less common. So this is one potential where as antibiotic use changes, different strains will uh, ascend and descend. And in this case, fluoroquinolones have been very high risk for C. difficile and maybe largely due to the O27 strain. And with the decrease of that strain, they may become for a while less risk. So I think it just brings out the whole issue of continued vigilance, that with the NHSN AU module, we can be looking, uh, crosswalking C. diff rates in cross facilities uh, with the AU use, and then be tweaking if we need to. We're not at this point, but perhaps in the future, we will want to change which antibiotics are part of this high-risk CDI antibiotics. And that, that affords, the NASN uh, SIR metric affords that. And can you talk a little bit about the limitations of your study and any future research questions that it raised? Well, I think uh, one is that it's an ecological study, and therefore these are associations, and we can't say as much about causality. But ecological studies are also very useful because they do talk about the effect the, the risks or effects of, in this case, antibiotic exposures across the population and not just in individuals. And so you always have these things interacting. I mean, you have a certain amount of antibiotic use interacting with a certain amount of C. diff pressure from the community, and you get a result of a certain rate of healthcare-associated C. difficile infection. And we know now that antibiotics don't just increase the, the risk of an individual getting C. difficile. We, I said a little bit about that before, how antibiotics disrupt the microbiota of a person and increase their risk for C. difficile. But also, they increase the risk for people becoming colonized. And so there is this effect that's been shown now that antibiotics given in, in your neighbor <laughs> increases your risk for C. difficile. So if you are admitted to a ward where there's a lot of C. difficile, then of course you're at increased risk for getting C. difficile infection, but also if you're into a ward where there's C. difficile and a lot of antibiotic use, and of course they go together, you are at increased risk for getting C. difficile, even if you don't get those antibiotics. It's the neighbor effect of antibiotics. And so that's one thing that ecological study does afford us. So it's both a limitation and strength. And uh, other things we can do, and certainly in the future when you think about other questions, would be to look over time and look especially at hospitals that do change their antibiotic use over time and see how C. difficile risk is changing over time in those same facilities, so longitudinal analysis, if you will. Yeah, and, and one thing um, that I think is hot right now in research, and maybe this doesn't apply so much to the Shea readers because ostensibly most of them are epidemiologists at heart and good at methodology and numbers, but this was a facility-level analysis and so this doesn't go into individual patient level optics. And I think with uh, prediction models being so hot in, in um, data analyses, this, this was not a prediction 
model, but rather it highlighted insights on a facility level optic to guide stewardship potential targets for overall C. diff uh, mitigation and reduction. So as an example, in the, the analysis that adjusted for confounding variables, an independent risk factor was high-risk antibiotic use, and the 100 additional uh, days of therapy contributed or was correlated to 12% increase of hospital-associated C. diff. So, you know, that, that's not a prediction model. That just gives you some insight of if you were to decrease 100 days of therapy of these high-risk antimicrobials, that you, you might see a correlation in your own data. And so I just wanted to point that out because I do think in the future there will be an ability, if we do incorporate some of these findings into a patient encounter level analysis, that there might be a prediction model that could be built to help give insights in real time. And so that, that might be years down the line, but that would be an interesting thing to look at, particularly for um, healthcare associations and hospitals that are grouped together and can have you know, a more robust data set on the patient encounter level. So those are some of the things that I think in general healthcare is looking at in trying to tackle some of these hospital-associated infections that we're dealing with. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Yu and Dr. McDonald, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This concludes Episode 15 of the Itchy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and thanks for listening.